The following audio has been brought to you by Word of Grace Community Church. For more information about Word of Grace, visit wogcc.com. Today we get to start off a new series. We are going into the book of 1 Timothy. This is a book that was a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. That's why it's called 1 Timothy. It's called 1 Timothy because he wrote two letters, at least that we have record of, that have been canonized or made scripture in our Bible. Um, The things that we need to know here, Timothy was one of Paul's closest, most trusted disciples that he had been mentoring, pouring time, pouring uh, leadership into. He'd been training, developing him. He had invested a lot into Timothy. And in the New Testament, you can see uh, several characters that Paul had, um, that he was mentoring, leading, discipling. There's guys like Barnabas and Silas, uh, Titus, others that he had been pouring into. And uh, Timothy, in particular, is a very young guy. He's a young man. He'd been traveling with Paul several times on different missionary trips um, around what was at the time just called Asia. Um, and so he'd been traveling around with him. He had not only been learning from Paul's teaching, he had been learning from watching Paul. Um, In fact, one of the things that Paul says later is, follow me as I follow Christ. Uh, Timothy had the opportunity to do that firsthand. He got to travel around with Paul, watch the way he lived, not just the things that he said. And in so doing, they had built a deep relationship, a deep connection, a deep trust, so much so that when Paul gets news and hears that there are guys in the city of Ephesus that are bringing false doctrine in, that are are teaching things that are not the gospel, Paul grabs young Timothy and says, you go, you set them straight, you take care of that church. And Timothy was a young guy. And so the fact that Paul would send him, it shows how much he trusted him, how much he knew that he had invested in him. And the book of 1 Timothy has a whole lot of practical church leadership and order stuff, like how to handle different situations. In fact, that's some of the things, one of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter is after he sent Timothy to the church at Ephesus, he sent this letter kind of just to follow up with, with advice and even orders on how to handle different challenges that he knew that Timothy was going to face in the city of Ephesus because of the culture there, Um, and then also because of some of the things that he'd been hearing about that church. So as we go into the book of 1 Timothy and we start reading this letter, of course there's going to be a lot of practical insights and practical application for church leadership and church order, but there's another thing that I want to challenge us all to step back and kind of look at big picture as we go throughout this letter, is what we've talked about just briefly already, the cross-generational mentorship that's happening. Take note of the fact that Paul didn't just run his race and, and, um, and use people to help him, and then when it came time to the end, just clock out and go, all right, that's that. In fact, it's important to be mindful of the fact that this letter was written towards the end of Paul's life as well. This is when Paul was getting close to checking out. And so the fact that he was way up in years, very experienced, the fact that he took the time once again to not just send someone to take care of an issue, but to follow up and invest more into that individual for the further of the gospel um, and for the sustaining of the church after Paul leaves is something we should all be mindful of and pay attention to. So 
Having said that, let's get into it. First Timothy chapter one, the apostle Paul begins like this. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. So two quick notes there. One, as Paul opens this letter, with the fact that he's going to be giving quite a bit of instruction, practical application for the way church should be ordered and the way leadership should run, before he starts giving any other input or any other advice, he says, hey, Timothy, I'm Paul, an apostle by command of God. Now, in other letters and in other situations, Paul had said, appointed by God. Means the same thing, but the term here that he uses when he says command by God is a military term. The Greek word there that he uses is a military term from that day and age saying, this is a command, a charge from God that I'm an apostle, which is the Greek word for sent one. God sent me with command and authority. Be mindful of that while you're reading this letter that I'm about to give to you. And then secondly, he goes into, once again, we have the picture of the cross-generational mentoring. Paul calls him my true son in the faith. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't go around to everyone calling them my son. It would be a little awkward. Like if I went up to just one of you and I was just like, hey, you're my true son in the faith, you'd be like, huh? And that's a little awkward. That's a little weird, a little strange there. That just shows and gives a picture of the deep connection, the deep investment, the deep relationship that Paul had with Timothy. With Timothy. My one pause and charge right here is that if you are more experienced, more advanced in years, more life experience, more ministry experience, whatever it may be, it's not time for you to just sit and rest on your laurels. It's not time even if, I'm, I'm not trying to say you can't retire. No, that's ridiculous. But if you are more advanced in years and life experience, you ought to be pouring into a Timothy. You ought to find someone younger than you that needs a mentor, that needs someone to come alongside them and spend time and investment in them so that they can continue to carry the cause of Christ forward. And then secondly there, if you are young, if you are not as advanced or not as experienced, you need to put yourself in the role of Timothy that you need to be finding a Paul, someone who is willing, someone who when you look at their life, you're like, I want to be like them. I want to, when I, when I grow up or when I get to a certain stage in life, I want to be like them or I want to handle situations like them. There are people in this church um, that I'm thinking of right now that when I look at their lives, I'm like, I want to be more like them. There is uh, someone on our board named Dave Vroom that every time I interact with Dave Vroom, I leave conversations with him and I'm like, I want to be more like that man. And so my responsibility as a Timothy in this situation is to say, hey, Dave, when you get a chance, you think you could carve out some time for coffee? I'd love to just learn from you. And so right here we see two generational, um, there's a gap here. And our responsibility to make sure that the kingdom of God that the church, especially here in our local community and in our environment, continues to advance forward by generation to generation to generation. 
What a shame it would be on us if we worked really hard to make our church healthy and strong and thriving as long as we're here and then just go, well, that was good, now I'm gone, or I'm getting ready to go. Paul understood the importance of handing off the torch, handing off the baton to the next generation. So, Paul calls Timothy my true son in the faith. It's important we take note of that. We ought to be developing a relationship with someone that we could consider a father in the faith or a son in the faith. Notice Paul didn't consider Timothy a pawn worth using. He saw him as a son worth investing into. You love a son in a way that you don't just love everyone else. We are called to love everyone, especially uh, believers. It says in 1 John that the outsiders will know us by our love for one another. But when you call someone a son, there is a different level of relationship and love there. So Paul wasn't just using Timothy. He didn't see him as just a teammate or just an employee or a missionary partner. He considered him a son. One of the things that we say very often here is that discipleship happens best in the context of relationship. We see that right here in this relationship between Paul and Timothy. Let's continue reading in verse 3. This is where Paul gets into the fun stuff, one of my favorite things to talk about, a warning against false teachers. Verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So Paul's reminding him, hey, remember, the reason I sent you to, to Ephesus is to charge the guys who are teaching false doctrine that they stop. And the, the interesting thing here is when he says charge them, it's the same military term he used earlier when talking about by the command of God, he's, still, he's using another military term to say charge them to stop teaching false doctrine and to stop wasting their time on pointless myths and genealogies. And he said they don't lead to a genuine stewardship of our faith. Now, these are guys who were obsessing over the Old Testament law, the Torah specifically, the first five books of the Bible. These are guys who were pouring, spending all their time pouring through those first five books of the Bible. And even more narrow than that, the genealogies. If you've ever read the first five books of the Bible, there's a whole lot of so-and-so beget, so-and-so beget, so-and-so and beget, so-and-so. There's like really, 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 really long lists of genealogies there. And these guys were reading into those genealogies and trying to make connections and connect dots to try and just come up with some, oh, wow, did you see this? Come here, I want to show you what I think I found in this passage right here where so-and-so begat so-and-so. And you know, if they are their son and their son, and then the way, if you look seven generations later and God's number is seven, so if you go seven times seven times seven, holy holiness, then you can... And these guys were sitting here pouring over stuff, trying to make things happen. And Paul's sitting here saying, tell those guys to stop. And he said, I charge those guys to stop because the things that they're spending all their time on arguing about and debating don't lead to an authentic faith. And here's the thing. It's a whole lot easier to read and to study, and to debate, and discuss, and muse, it's a whole lot easier to do that than it is to actually walk out and act 
simple truths that we already know. It's a whole lot easier to sit here and just pour and dig and try and find deep, crazy mysteries and deep, deep, deep spiritual things. It's a lot easier to just keep pouring and searching for a new, deep revelation than it is to actually act on the things that God has clearly revealed to us in Scripture. So when we see in Scripture things like, like deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me, that's not convenient. That's not comfortable. That's not fun. We see things like, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Or when uh, we see different types of challenges or things like that that don't let us sit in our com comfortability. Things like when James says, pure and undefiled re religion is caring for widows and orphans. All those types of commands and things like that that we find in Scripture, it's kind of like, I think I'd rather talk about genealogies, wouldn't you? It's easy to sit here and pour over things and talk and debate. And Paul says that does not live to a stewardship of authentic faith. If you go to the book of James, it's written really clear that if you have an authentic faith, if you have true faith in Christ, you will be acting on it, not just talking about it. So let's be mindful of that, that if, if we're sitting here, if all we ever do, I, I am a huge, huge, huge fan and supporter of community groups. I believe they are a huge part of what God is going to do in our church family continuing to move forward. But if all you ever do is get together in Bible studies and study the Bible, and all you ever do is read and debate and talk about theology, and you're not more concerned with acting on your faith, that ought to be a red flag for you. That ought to be something that makes you go, I need to check out my faith. If I'm not acting on it, then uh, something's up, something's wrong. I love, there's a book uh, by an author named Bob Goff. Um, he, he wrote a book called Love Does. And I love that book. It's incredibly challenging because the whole premise of the book is what we're talking about right here. It's a whole book that he's basically talking about love doesn't talk about things and love doesn't just study things. Love does things. And this is a guy who's a, a very, very successful and wealthy lawyer who took a, all of his book sales to build uh, schools for underprivileged children in Uganda. So he's acting on it. He's, he's walking it out. That's a great book I encourage you to read. But uh, love does something, which leads us to the next point. In verse 5, Paul says this. This is, this is the key. The aim of our charge is what? Love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the aim of it. Now, let's be honest. An overwhelmingly large chunk of theological and doctrinal debates that happen today are not rooted in love. More often than not, they're driven by pride, a desire to be right. Um, they, they are driven by a fear of our culture or our lifestyles being challenged by someone else's. They are often driven by anger. And, and all you got to do is get on Facebook, right? Uh, if you get on Facebook and you see someone, it's almost, guys, <laughs> it is almost impossible nowadays to post something 
without someone finding something to split a hair on and argue about. I'll sit there trying to think of how I can post an encouraging word or, or something like that, and I'll have to sit there and go, okay, what's someone going to fight with me on this about? Or what's someone going to split apart in this? How is someone going to disagree with that? And it's almost impossible. It's like, okay, I'll just post a scripture, and then someone will be like, well, what do you mean right there by that scripture? It's like, <laughs> I just posted the word of God. I personally have come to my own new conviction of a rule that I don't engage in Facebook arguments because most of the time they don't go anywhere. Now, there's, some, I, there, there's a, a lady in our church who, who has challenged me on this quite a bit uh, because she's very convicted about it, and I believe that she could be called to do that. But me, I've learned that when I engage in arguments over Facebook and there's not a person who I'm sitting with face-to-face -face that we can read each other's body language and have actual care for each other face-to-face, -face, I usually step more into anger and frustration and I'm not contending for the gospel with a pure heart, as he said, and a sincere faith and right motives. And often that's what leads to false doctrine. In fact, that's the next point, that wrong doctrine usually comes from wrong motives. Wrong doctrine usually comes from wrong motives. Here's the thing. There is no shortage of voices in our world. There is no shortage of access for you to find any perspective or any doctrine or any angle of belief that you want to believe. Here's the dangerous thing, is that a lot of times people actually want what they want to believe more than they want to find what's truth. Like people want to believe certain things about God or they want to believe God is this way or they want to believe um, like they just want to have their own picture of God or they come to God with a certain picture of what he's like rather than going to the scripture to say, God, what are you like? I have a friend when I was in Bible school um, that came up to me one day and he'd been studying, and he opens this passage, and he says, Stephen, let's chat. And uh, he said to me, he, he showed me this passage, and it was a particularly difficult scripture um, to face, to be faced with, I guess. It, it's not a very palatable passage of scripture. It's one that when you read it, you got to go, ooh. And to, to spare getting into a sidebar, I'm not going to talk about what it is, but the thing that happened was, he, he reads this scripture with me, and he says, Stephen, how does that go with what we believe? And that's the wrong question. It's not, how does this verse go with what we believe? It's, how does what we believe go with this verse? That's backwards. Our belief needs to come from the scripture, not to the scripture. We need to take off, our, it, this is a difficult thing to try and take off our presuppositions and everything we think about God and try. I, I was raised in a certain circle of faith. In fact, I grew up in the exact same circles as Pastor Derek. Um, and uh, I grew up, when I was 26 years old, I'm 32 now, 26 years old, I had a challenge that I believe came by the Holy Spirit, which was you need to evaluate what you believe and why you believe it. I had inherited a faith. My perceptions of God and of how you interpret scripture came from my parents and I realized I really need to get in the scripture to learn what I really for myself believe about God. And I found in the process of trying to dig through the scripture, it was really, really, really hard 
to put down everything that I had been taught and try to approach the scripture honestly with a pure heart, no other motives to just say, God, who are you? What if I went up to my wife, we just celebrated our third anniversary, what if I went up to my wife and I said, Katie, I just want you to know, dear, I love you so much. I just, everything about you, I love your long, dark, wavy hair. I love your deep, beautiful brown eyes. I love the way that every day when I get home, you're in the kitchen singing beautiful songs while you're making dinner for me. I love how every single day I can throw my clothes on the floor, miss the hamper completely, and you always put them in the hamper for me and do the laundry for me. You fold my clothes after they're out of the, out of the dryer. You even iron the ones that are wrinkled. I am, and you even set out clothes for me the next day. Honey, I love you so much. I just adore you. If I said that to my wife, at the first point of I love your long, dark, wavy hair, she would go, because my wife's hair is about this long and it's blonde. <laughs> she doesn't have deep brown eyes. She doesn't have dinner cooked every day when I get home. In fact, I'm home before her. She doesn't do the whole gambit of all those things that I just went through. Be awesome. It would be amazing. Like, that's what every guy before marriage thinks that marriage is going to be, right? It's like, she's going to do all this for me. No. Newsflash, if you're getting married or if you have not been married yet, it don't, it don't work like that. But here's the thing. We like to approach God with our ideas of what God should be like. And a lot of times we fall in love with ideas of God rather than falling in love with God. And that's why he's given us the scripture. So that we could look into this 66 volumes over thousands of years that help us learn the character and the nature, the priorities of God. So I challenge you. Because like I said, there's no shortage of voices. You can get on the internet real quick. You can turn on a podcast really quick. You can turn on the television. You can read magazines. There are so many voices. You can find anyone to back up what you want to believe. The question is, have you really fallen for your wife? Have you really fallen for the true God? Or have you made up a picture of what you want God to be and then tried to find the scriptures that you can cherry pick to back up what you want to believe? Paul is contending that we fight for right doctrine and love. People, usually wrong doctrine, wrong doctrine usually comes from wrong motives. People try to uh, use the scripture for pride. They'll use it for fame. I mean, there's famous preachers in the world. I'm not saying all famous preachers are in error. I'm not saying that by any means. Some are, some aren't. Um, people use doctrine for money. We've all seen the guy on TV who's like, if, if you'll sow your seed right now of $99 in the next three minutes, the Lord's going to bless this holy water that I'm going to send to you, and gonna, you pour that holy water over your house, and God's going to bless, like, don't listen to that guy, okay? <laughs> don't do that. People use scripture for money. People use scripture for control or manipulation. People can use the scripture for all sorts of things to back up all sorts of different motives. That's why 
Paul makes such a case in this first letter that we do it with a pure heart, with a right conscience, and a sincere faith. That when we're teaching or talking about the scripture or talking about God, that our heart and our motives are right. In Proverbs, it says, guard your heart above all else. Above anything else that you want to guard or protect, guard your heart. Because from it flows the issues of life. Ultimately, Timothy was dealing with men who were obsessing over the Torah and specifically the genealogies in the Old Testament. And Paul says that's a waste of time and does not lead to godly living, but to strife, division, and controversy. Ask yourself, the things that you're arguing and debating over, and when I'm talking to someone or debating or, or, or having a disagreeable conversation on different things, I'll ask myself, are we both open in this conversation? Are we both being reasonable or are we both just closed-minded and coming at each other like this? And if that's the case, I'm walking away from that conversation. Graciously, I'm going to try my best to just go, you know what, I don't think this is getting anywhere. That's why I won't really get into Facebook debates anymore, because 95% of the Facebook debates are this. They're not, hey, let's try. There's someone uh, who, I, who I am very good friends with, that I care about very much, that I, I disagree with on some political things. And... Uh, they said something one day about a certain candidate back when the presidential elections were happening, and it shocked me that they were supporting a, a certain candidate. And, um, and so I, I went up to them, and I just said, hey, I, I heard you say this earlier, and I just, I'm curious, I would like to understand why you believe that person would be the best. I didn't come at them saying, hey, you're supporting such and such? What's wrong with you? I didn't go up to them saying, Hey, that person is the devil, and if they get elected, you know. How often are our conversations driven by love, as Paul said, handled graciously with an attempt to try to understand one another? Understanding ought to be our goal, driven by love. Who'd you vote for, Pastor Stephen? Don't you wish you knew? Love is the charge. Love is what we're called to. Let's go on, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Now, we know that the law is good. Remember, he just talked about these guys who were pouring over the law over and over. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, talking about the Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Bible, understanding this, that the law is not laid down <clears throat> for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. He's talking about these guys who are sitting here pouring over the law over and over and over and over, studying it, trying to dig and find deep things. Paul says, hey, let's remember why we have the law. It's not there so we can try and dig out and find other de genealogical mysteries that make us go, oh, wow. No, the law was given to us so that we could see a standard that God has of perfection and we could try to do it and we would fail and realize we need a savior. That's why God gave us the law. In the book of Galatians, 
Paul said that the law was given to us as a tutor to point us to Christ. The law was given with all these commandments so that we would try to live by them and every single one of us in some facet or in some capacity, even to just deep down in our hearts, have all broken the law. Every single one of us are guilty. So when we look at the standard of the law in the old covenant, it ought to make every single one of us go, oh, snap. I'm in trouble if I don't have a savior. The law was given to show us our sin. The law was given so that we would realize if God does not save us by some Messiah, we are in trouble. That is why the law was given. In fact, in Romans, in the book of Romans chapter 8, verse 3, Paul said what the law could not do, talking about making us right with God, what the law could not do, God did in sending his son for us. If you look at the Bible, if you look at scripture and you think that the Bible is your book that tells you how to behave good so that God will accept you, that's wrong glasses. You need to take those off and throw them away. That is wrong doctrine. That's false doctrine. And that's what a lot of these guys were teaching. They were teaching, yes, you need Jesus. All right, we'll agree on that. But also you have to obey the law of Moses, to which Paul spent a lot of time saying false wrong. That is not true. The gospel is found in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are saved by grace, through faith, not of works. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. The only way that you and I are right with God is by believing in his son, Jesus Christ. You can never be good enough. You can never fulfill the law. You can never do enough good deeds to make God go, wow, you really are good. You can't do it. The law was given to us so that we would look at these standards and go, I can't do this. I can try for a little while. I can do good for a little while. But because of my sin nature, I inevitably fall back into sin. I need a savior, which is the good part. Coming to the next part, for, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, enter that savior. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Check this out. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the faith, and, or I'm sorry, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. There's that Savior we were talking about. In fact, check this out, what Paul says right here. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He's talking about, let's fight, let's fight false doctrine. Let's stand up against these guys who are teaching false doctrine. And he says, here's the gospel right here. Are you ready for it? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's the gospel. That is the message we are fighting for. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn sinners. Facebook arguments. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to go sinner. He never reacted that way. The only people he got strong with like that was the people who were self-righteous that thought they were awesome because how much Bible they knew and the lifestyle they lived. Jesus 
butted heads with those guys a lot. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And in case you're not sitting here thinking, oh, that's not me. Paul says, of whom I am the chiefest. Paul says, I'm the worst sinner. He says, I'm the one who persecuted the church. I'm the one who killed Christians and imprisoned them. I'm the one who held the jackets of the people who were stoning Stephen to death. He's like, so in case you're wondering if God could ever forgive you and love you and forgive you, he forgave me and loved me and he's using me. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. If you're hearing my voice right now, that's you. You are the sinner that he came to save. And Satan, one of the terms that the Bible calls him is the accuser of the brethren. Satan's job is to condemn you and make you feel guilty about what you've done. And he loves to tell you that God could never forgive what you've done. Yeah, 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 all that Bible stuff's nice and church makes you feel real good but I know what you've done. That stuff that no one else knows. That stuff that if other people knew, there's no way. God knows that stuff about you. He can't. No, Paul says, I'm the worst of the worst. I'm the worst sinner there is. That's why he said, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, talking about the church, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. In the Old Testament, what he's talking about there, in the Old Testament, there was a, a separation between acting sinfully out of ignorance and acting sinfully intentionally. That's why he's mention, mentioning there. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. God can use anyone because God can save anyone. God can use any of you because God can save any of you. God can use anyone. Doesn't matter how bad you think you are or how disqualified you think you are. Paul shows us right here, God can still use you because God can save you. The grace of God is more powerful than your worst sin. There is nothing, if you stopped and think about what you perceive to be the worst thing you've ever done in your life, if you ask me what that was, I can think back to a specific moment in my life, the thing that I would perceive to be the worst thing I've ever done, although to God, it's, it's sin. It's all separating us from him. God looks at that and goes, my grace is greater. God looks at that and goes, the blood of my son Jesus is stronger than your sin. Well, Pastor Stephen, what about the unpardonable sin? The Bible talks about that the unpardonable sin, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And what I believe that means is the Holy Spirit's work is to reveal Jesus to us and to regenerate us by the Spirit of God. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, I believe, is to absolutely intentionally refuse and resist his work and deny Christ. That's ultimately, I believe, the sin that every unbeliever who spends eternity separated from God, I believe that's the sin they commit, the unpardonable sin, to resist Christ and say, I'm not going to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing you've done. Here's a good thing for you. Let me give you some encouragement. If you're sitting here going, oh, I wonder if God could, I wonder if he could care for me or if God is interested in me. If you are concerned, that's a sign you have not committed the unpardonable sin. 
If you're concerned about your spiritual state, if you're concerned about eternity, you haven't con- committed the unpardonable sin because you wouldn't care. You would not give <laughs> a care about it. Let's wrap this up starting in verse 18 through 20. Oh, I didn't finish from beyond there. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ, this is verse 16, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages. And then Paul just like gets so excited about what he's saying, he just launches into the, like this little prayer, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. He just can't help himself. Verse 18, this charge, he brings it back home. I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Strong terminology he's using again for fighting for right doctrine. That you may wage the good warfare holding faith and good conscience. There's the heart motives again. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And he starts dropping names, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's a passage that makes us go, wait, what? Paul's handing folks over to Satan? How does that even happen? Is that like, here you go, devil? Here's Hymenaeus and Alexander. There's another passage um, in, the, in Corinthians I can't remember if it's 1 Corinthians or 2nd, oh, 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, Paul actually instructs the church in Corinth to, same terminology here, to hand someone over to Satan, here's the key, here's the catch, that their flesh might be destroyed, that their soul might be preserved. Let me put that in context to you. What that means is, if there's someone who is absolutely refusing to repent from their sin is in, in, and is clinging to their sinful lifestyle, will not repent will not apologize for it, and will not turn back to Christ. He's basically saying, kick that person out of the church is what he's saying. Hand them over to Satan so that Satan can, can wreak havoc in their lives, cause destruction in their lives, because that will lead to brokenness to the point where they may finally open their eyes and realize they need to repent and come to Christ. That's what he's saying. He's not saying... Just hand them over to Satan. They're going to go to hell forever. Who cares about them? He's saying, no, wash your hands of them. And if they're so refusing to open their hearts up to God and repent from their sins, wash your hands 